3: minimum of 4 lines
2: for $25 per line per month without autopay discount using debit or bank account $5 more per line without autopay plus taxes and fees phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due $35 per line connection charge applies ctmobile.com
0: support for this show comes from Atlassian Atlassian software like Jira Confluence and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone because individually we're great but together we're so much better
4: And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg.
1: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day, Canada. The next day, Thailand. Then, New York, London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from the J.W. Marriott Marco Island Beach Resort in Florida. My next guest made me feel very old today. (laughs) By reminding me that, oh God, 24 years ago uh, when she was visiting New York, I I put her daughter in the crowd at the Today Show so she could say hi to everybody back home.
0: Made her day, made her week.
1: (laughs) Wow, okay. Happy to be of service, but now you're making me feel old.
0: Well, I'm happy to see you again, Peter. And and
1: of course, my next (laughs) guest is, (laughs) well, thanks. Karen Bartlett is her name. She's the author of A Kid's Guide to Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades. Of course, that's where we are. We're in Marco. So I love kids guides because I think we all want to be kids again. uh, We all want to have that nature, of the the whole idea of discovery for the first time. Uh, And when it comes to travel, most of us act like children. So this works out just perfectly.
0: Well, and I do want to point out that there's a very small word over the word kids. It says a mostly Kids' guide. Yes, to Naples, Marco Island in the Everglades. So, Thank you for that
1: correction, Mom. Yes, sir.
0: <laughs> I have uh, many readers who have no children. Many, um, many grandparents buy them to be ready for their kids when they come to visit, and have no idea, you know, where to take very kids of varying ages. Um, now, so you, now you, now you
1: raised back. your kids in Naples.
0: I did. Uh, one was five, and one was seven when we came here, and so they grew up kind of barefoot on the beach.
1: What's changed?
0: What has changed? We. Um, live in a little community that uh, has a, a tram and a boardwalk down to the beach. And when we first moved here, there was a little shack at the end of the uh, boardwalk and the kids got to ring the bell at sunset and they got their fried cheese and <laughs> that's pretty much what the shack was all about. Today we have two beautiful, elegant clubs uh, and it's a much more sophisticated, um, environment as I, I
1: miss the fried cheese. We're back to the fried cheese again. Right? I'm
0: telling you, I can talk to you about fried frog legs. I can, I can talk to you about some very strange, uh,
1: can you still find that on any menu here?
0: You can find it in the Everglades. Yeah. You can, uh, you can find. And of
1: course, when you go to the Everglades and you order fried frog legs, you know what they're going to tell you? It tastes just like chicken.
0: Yes, I know. It's, it's one of those. An
1: alligator tastes just like chicken.
0: It all tastes just like chicken. And
1: at a certain point, cardboard tastes just like (laughs)
0: chicken. Exactly.
1: (laughs) I know. But other than the menu changes here, it's still a small community?
0: It is in a way in that we're very laid back um, and we're very open and friendly. And so you get that small community feeling here. But it can be very sophisticated, too. We have um, several events that are are world-renowned. Our Naples International Wine Festival, which raises tens of millions of dollars um, for children, for our children's programs here.
1: When putting together this book, you know I'm always a big fan of things that are not in the guidebook or not in the brochure that are accessible to everybody. So in the research of this book, that's probably what you were discovering.
0: That's exactly right. When uh, the kids and I came here, there was no such um resource at all and so we just got in the car on the weekends and we drove around and we found um, back roads and we discovered interesting characters and i mean seriously interesting characters such as um the head skunk ape researcher um down the in, head
1: skunk ape researcher he's
0: the head skunk ape researcher you I mean there there's a
1: there's a group on. of them
0: <laughs> uh no he's he's uh, sort of a, a lone wolf um, the CVB's not wasn't really thrilled with him because he kind of put uh, Naples in a funny uh, um, imagery. But he um, grew up. He's a tenth or so generation Gladesman, um, a, a uh, descendant of the old gator hunters and pioneers, and you know he grew up in the Glades. Um, anyway, he decided one day he saw the Everglades version of the of Bigfoot, <laughs> and um, he smelled really bad. Mm-hmm. Mostly because he sleeps in alligator holes and, um, you know, alligators are kind of nasty in there. And he eats lima beans and that causes the additional stinkiness. Well,
1: stop right there. I grew up with my mother making lima beans and I don't relate to them very well. <laughs> What's accessible to people here that you discovered that's not in most guidebooks?
0: What's accessible in what way?
1: That people didn't know about that you know about.
0: Oh, I can tell you things. Um you can actually go um slogging around in the swamp with one of the with the number one world famous everglades photographer um clyde butcher who's who's uh, the authority on Everglades photography and shoots with the, the, well, until a few years ago, shot with the the, the large format camera, would actually um, go into the Everglades with his equipment. And um, he has many books and he has a beautiful gallery. Um, and up until a few years ago, he was actually leading people into the swamp, up to their knees, their um, their
1: and then snakes the alligator got him. No snakes.
0: No. no, he um, he's turned over the actual guiding to um, his naturalists. But during the off season, when most people aren't here, uh-huh. it's wet. It's you know it's been raining, and so you're actually in the water. If you come in February when it starts to dry out, you don't get that same swamp slogging experience. But um, I was
1: just saying this morning, I'm looking for a swamp slogging uh-huh, experience.
0: Okay, you might also go to um, um, the um, you can go geocaching here and in the um, in the swamps, and you can find um, the little geocache boxes. You can find alligator poop in there. You never know what you're going to find here in the Everglades.
1: So sorry. So so far, I'm swamp sloshing and discovering alligator poop.
0: But there's more. There better be. Okay. So we've got the um, buzzard loop contest. Once a year, <laughs> on this very island of Marco, there's one little community that uh, most people don't associate with Marco because it's so totally weird, um, is a little town called Goodland. And once a year at Stan's Good Time Bar, or something to that effect, uh, they have the Buzzard Lope Contest because Stan wrote a song one time about how buzzards hop around roadkill in the, uh, on the highway and um he made it famous and he made himself famous in his own mind and every year he has a, a had a at the mullet festival he would have the buzzard lope contest and women and girls would dress in feathers and all kinds of stra- strange costumes and they would dance on stage and one would be um, given the crown of buzzard, lope, queen, or princess.
1: Which will be very helpful in later life. Yeah. Yes, it will. Okay. It's
0: good for your resume.
1: And the mullet festival?
0: The mullet festival is in January, but we have many festivals. We have the swamp buggy um, parade. We have um, the, the, the vehicles that are made from airplanes and yep. trucks and that sort of thing. Um, the
1: they, airboats, yeah.
0: They get out on that. Well, airboats are different. They're on flat.
1: Ah. Bulbs,
0: and they go through the water. The right. swamp buggy goes through wet and dry land, mud, that sort of thing. So that's the only difference really between a swamp buggy and an airboat, except for the big uh, propeller. propeller on yeah. the airboat. Okay, so the swamp buggies come out once a year for their parade right down sophisticated downtown Fifth Avenue, Naples. <laughs> um, and I think that's coming up. And we just had our Stone Crab Festival. And uh, what was the other festival? Well, you're a city
1: of festivals. Hey, I'm a big fan of the off-season. That's, to me, uh, the biggest uh, myth in the world, that the off-season is not when you want to go somewhere. The off-season was started by escaped Garmentos in New York who were freezing their you-know-what's-off in February. (laughs) and said, let's go to the Caribbean. To me, I'm a big fan of going to Florida in July and August because... I mean, there are no lines, you get great service, you, the thermometer is maybe six degrees warmer, who cares?
0: Everything's on sale, you get amazing art and clothes and beautiful things on sale, the restaurants, you have your $5 entrees, um, appetizers and your $10 entrees and you get the table at the front of the restaurant. Okay,
1: I gotta ask the obvious question, is there still an early bird special?
0: Oh my god, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We, we haven't gotten rid of that yet, but um, but most of the early birds are now young because we want to go out. They want to go out partying. They want to um, be there for the sunset.
1: So there is an uh, early bird special. It, is, it, it persists in Marco.
0: There, there's less of it in the season because right. we don't we don't have that availability. But yeah. Uh, yeah, off season, you get amazing deals on everything. It's the best time to come.
1: It is. It is. Mm-hmm. For somebody who's never been here before, what's the biggest surprise that they're not expecting?
0: Hmm. We have, um, one of the things I think we have is the um, soon to be world class botanical garden. Um, it is probably about 15 years old now. We have a, a garden on the east coast, Fairchild uh, Tropical Gardens and I believe that in time, the Naples Botanical Garden will overtake its reputation, world reputation as a botanical garden. And they've incorporated, um, from my point of view, they've incorporated wonderful children's programs, um, art and sculpture throughout the garden. Right now, Hans Godot Frabel, um, glass, nationally known glass artist, has um, huge lifestyle size sculptures um, in the garden, there's always something going on and dinosaurs We're not
1: in And of course let's not forget swamp sloshing swamp slogging <laughs> Karen Bartlett I always have fun coming back to Naples. So many great resorts, this one being one of them. One of the older ones, but it continues to grow. Um, And you know, if you've listened to this show at all, I never do a show unless I bring on somebody who knows more about the community than anybody else. And in this case, that happens to be the fire chief. (laughs) Pete DeMaria from the fire department. How are you, chief? I'm doing well, thank you. I mean... You guys, you know, this is the time of the year where people are usually recovering from storms. Uh, You dodged it this year. Last year, you didn't. Uh, You had your work cut out.
5: Yeah, we had a really uh, tough year last year with Hurricane Irma coming through, and uh, our heart goes out to all the uh, other communities that have had to deal with storms this year.
1: And the thing is, you know, a different protocol comes in. You've got to know the community ahead of time. You can't just discover the problem when the storm hits.
5: No, that's correct, yeah. We definitely have to be aware of uh, all the hazards in our area and how to respond to them.
1: And tell me what those hazards, are. whats what's the particular nature of this area that gives you the most challenge, and what do people need to know when they come here
5: well we, we're a, a beach community, so we have to always worry about storm surge and and the damage that the water can cause in our community if uh, we get a really high storm surge so that's our biggest uh, our biggest threat
1: and storm surges when the wind is the wrong direction ain't going to make your day
5: that's correct yep
1: so what happened last year well last year uh,
5: hurricane Irma came up uh, through the, uh, the pass between Cuba, the Florida Straits, and uh, it hit us uh, pretty much a direct on hit, uh, skipped through the backside of Marco Island and hit Naples head on. And uh, we had a lot of wind damage, a lot of trees down, uh, but overall our, our community uh, dealt with it and, and recovered
1: uh, fairly quickly. You know, you and I have talked offline about fire codes, and, you know, fire codes get written after things like this. A- you know, after the MGM Grand Fire in Las Vegas, they, they redid the fire, fire codes in Las Vegas. They had to. Right. Right? Uh, I'm assuming they're going to be writing rewriting the fire codes in London after the Grenville Towers fire. What about the fire codes here? What have you been able to do? What improvements have you been able to make?
5: Well, I, I think we came out as well as we did is because we have adopted Miami-Dade uh, building code, and, and, and that's been a, a benefit to our community. And, uh, you know, we see that other communities that don't have a, a strong building code like that have seen a lot more damage. So uh, we were fortunate in that fact that we have uh, good building codes and that the, the structures are generally built to withstand uh, some pretty high winds.
1: And that's just wind. Then there's fire.
5: Right. Fire and flood can be a, can be a separate hazard that uh, causes a lot of destruction as well.
1: But just generally for people visiting the area, I mean, I'm one of those guys you know, and I'm not superstitious or crazy. I just don't stay above the sixth floor if I can possibly avoid it because I don't know a fire department in the world that can effectively and quickly fight a fire above the sixth floor, and that's even if you have sprinklers. Well, that that that's
5: true. I mean, it's tough to access. Uh, we have to carry our equipment up. We do have a, a, a 95-foot platform, but depending on how f- close, You're limited. Yeah, we're close be- because of access. So if we can't get close enough, then we can't reach uh, the building above six or seven. So. so
1: I tell all my friends who are going to resorts or beach destinations around the world, Hey, have a great time. Just stay below the sixth floor. You'll have a wonderful vacation. Well, you
5: can, uh, you can
1: self escape that way. That's for sure. I'm all about self escape yeah. <laughs> in life. Yes. I mean, yeah. you want to have options for sure. Right. Um, and also I tell people this all the time and please correct me if you think I'm wrong. Okay. But I, I always ask people the same question. You're asleep in your hotel room whatever floor you're on, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and the fire alarm goes off, what's the first thing you do? And they'll say, I get up. And I say, no, you don't get up. You roll off the bed and stay on the floor.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, you certainly, uh, to avoid smoke, which right. you know is going to be above you, you want to stay low and... Uh, access your way to get out of that build, out of that room. But I think really the first thing is that you want to, uh, when you go to a place that's strange, you want to know how to get out. So you want to take a look at the signs on your your way to egress out of that room. And they have them all over. They have them house. on the inside
1: and, doors. But you know what? I don't. I, honestly, I never pay attention to them. What I do is when I get out of the elevator, I just count the number of doors. I count the number of doors from the elevator or at the stairway, which is usually near the elevator, elevator to the to the door of where I'm staying
5: that's a good habit to be in so you know how many doors you have to pass to get back out
1: yeah because if the visibility is limited you don't have a choice the flashlight's not going to help you no no it's not I mean you know in a a smoke situation you you turn on the flashlight it's worse
5: yeah you can only see a a foot in front of you exactly if if that
1: and then the second thing I tell people if they once they roll out of the bed is yeah go to the door put your hand on the door if the door is hot don't open the door if the door's really hot, go into the bathroom, get as many towels as you can, shove them under the doorway so that you stop a lot, a lot of the smoke from coming in. Then go in the bathroom and turn on every faucet and shower head you've got because that, that, that steam will absorb a lot of the particulates. Mm-hmm. And then you kiss your ass goodbye.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a tough situation, Yeah, when you're yeah. stuck in, you, get, you know, you're, uh, you're stuck in that place and you're just waiting for help then.
1: I know. Another yeah. reason to be below the sixth floor. I guess yes. All right, now I have to ask the most important question. What do you like to eat? Oh, uh I I uh, you have to ask a firefighter these questions.
5: Yeah, of course. We we have the best. Well, if if it wasn't at one of the stations because we have No, really I'm talking great about for cooks. people
1: visiting Naples who are not going to be going over to see yeah. you. So what we we love uh
5: for breakfast we love to to go to EJ's at, at Bayfront. They they serve a fantastic breakfast. Uh good people always have a uh, good spirits. Uh, lunchtime I, I enjoy, uh, with a last name of DeMarie, I, I enjoy Cosmo's Pizzeria. He, uh, John Luca is the owner there and he's just a, a, a,
1: great, uh, resident of our community. So if you're looking for the 1020 for the fire chief, he's either eating pizza is having breakfast at EJ's. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and what are you ordering at EJ's?
5: Well, I, I enjoy a good, good omelet or, uh, eggs Benedict and things <laughs> like that. So they're, they're, they're. Really good. They serve a good and, a, and a, a lot of food. So that's always good.
1: So you're a big portion guy. I tend to be. Uh-huh. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, but food at the fire station pretty good?
5: It, it's always good. We have great firehouse cooks there.
1: Do you publish your recipes?
5: Well, uh, we haven't, but we, we were on a, a television show this year. It was a great neighborhood chefs, and they came into the firehouse, and they, uh, uh, they did a bit with our guys who, who made some really great uh, meals for, uh, for the
1: show. And now you've learned from that.
5: And we've learned from that, yes.
1: Is there one popular item at the, at
5: the station? Oh, there's, there's just so many. I don't know if I could, could point out one, but they make a great chicken burrito. If you are
6: continuing
0: on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care.
1: You know, every time I do a show in Florida, there's a 40% chance that every guest I introduce and I ask them where they're from, it's New Jersey. It's like unbelievable. It's uncanny. So let's try this out. Pat Rutledge, the executive director of the Marco Island Historical Society. Where are you from?
4: I'm from New Jersey. There we go. Okay.
1: (laughs) And you came down like so many other people did because you were vacationing here.
4: I was. I was vacationing almost 30 years ago. Um, That was when we found Marco Island. But um, didn't stay too long. Went and uh, visited a lot of other places. And then when retirement came, we came back to Marco.
1: Right. Now, we mentioned Marco Island Historical Society. There is history here.
4: There is amazing history here you know peter there have been people on marco island for over six thousand years so for a small island and by the
1: way they were from new jersey too but that's another story
4: yeah that's another story but for a small island um like marco to have really the rich rich stories that we tell at the marco island historical museum is very very special tell me one i'll tell you about a cat A cat. A cat. So in 1895, a gentleman by the name of W.D. Collier walked out his front door and walked across the street to get some muck to fertilize his garden. Well, he put a shovel in the ground and all of a sudden started to hit objects, many objects. And so... um, As they came to the surface, he realized that these objects were not recent, they were quite old. In 1896, Frank Hamilton Cushing, who was an anthropologist from the Smithsonian Institution, came down to Mr. Collier's garden and started to dig. Well, in about three or four months, over a thousand items came to the surface. These pieces were preserved in an oxygen-free muck. But once they hit the air... They
1: started to oxidize.
4: Many of them did. Some, though, didn't. Um, And so, as a result, we have... um, pieces that are dated somewhere between 500 and 1,500 years old. Wow. So Mr. Cushing continued his dig and then went back to the Smithsonian institution and uh, where he worked with um, University of Pennsylvania who was also a sponsor of his uh, his dig and they started to divide up these items. Well unfortunately for Mr. Cushing he died somewhere in the process as did Dr. Pepper who was with the University of Pennsylvania. So it was up to the two institutions to divvy up the goods. And um, as it turned out, the Smithsonian was the one that kept probably the most iconic of all of the pieces, the key marker cat. The cat. The cat. And the University of Pennsylvania also has a treasure trove of the items. So in just a few short weeks, we will be bringing back here to Marco Island together for the first time in over a hundred years pieces that came out of that muck pit. And they'll be on display at the Marco Island Historical Museum for two and a half years.
1: That's a cool story. It is a
4: very cool okay, story. It,
1: it begs a question, is the cat coming back? The
4: cat is coming back. All right, that's the, okay. The cat is the star of the show. Uh, the people of Marco Island have wanted this for a long time, you know. The Historical Society will be 25 years old next year. That's young. It, well, it is, but um, we've been on a quest for that whole 25 year period to make this happen for the people, not just for the people of Marco Island. This is for all of the people who come to visit us here. You know, last year we had 25,000 visitors to our museum on Marco. Um, when the cat was here previously for just three and a half months, 35,000 people walked through a bank lobby to see it. So it's gonna be good for everybody.
1: You know, you mentioned about oxidation. I, to- I tell the story of, of a ship in, in Stockholm called the Wassa. And in 1500, when, when the Swedish had a real armada, and they were a very powerful global navy, they built the largest ship ever built. It didn't design, it wasn't designed very well, but they didn't know it. And, they, and it, on its maiden trip, as they launched it from the, from the shipyard, right in the harbor of Stockholm, a gust of wind came. It was very top-heavy. It rolled over and sank in the harbor and stayed there, sunk, for, until 1956. And then somebody went down in a diving suit and said, you know what? the chemical content of the water is so clean in stockholm that the ship's been totally preserved but they'd learned their lesson by then about oxidation and they knew they just couldn't raise the ship it would completely like disintegrate so they built the museum first and they built it Uh over the ship and they then raised the ship in the museum with all sorts of humidifiers and special equipment and that is a unbelievable way to see that ship today it's unbelievable i strongly recommend it So you didn't have the benefit of that back in the 1800s.
4: No, no. And so it's really interesting, too, because one of the reasons that um, we have such a hard time really pinpointing how old these pieces are is because once they came out, um, there was a loss of control. And there were different methods tried to preserve them. Some worked and some, some didn't. Right. So anything from shellac to glue to slow drying. So um, that's why we, we struggle with the precise dating of them. But we know it's somewhere between 500 and 1,500 years old. And you've got them now. Well, we will have them. They will be here in just a few short weeks. you got it, Pat Rutledge, the executive director
1: from New Jersey <laughs> <laughs> of the, the Historical Society, I should
4: say. That's right. And any admission charge? No. No, there is no admission charge. Riding along in my automobile
7: My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio
2: With no particular place to go
1: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at wwwaudiblepodcastcom travel today to get a free audiobook and 30 day trial my next guest has been a master captain this is scary 31 years um i mean i think i'm a captain but this guy's a captain and he's uh, he takes people on great tours on an eight meter long sailing vessel right off the dock here at the at the marriott marco island resort and Let we welcome him captain tom williams how are you sir
6: i'm great peter thank you for having me
1: well since, since i can now reveal that you've been there this for 31 years you've seen all the changes here then
6: absolutely amazing changes good changes very good changes
1: tell me which ones
6: well, when I first came, I came in 1978, actually, 40 years ago. Um, there was one place for pizza. There was one <laughs> place for gasoline. There was one little grocery store. Everything was take it or leave it. We don't care. Buy it here or don't get it at all or drive 20 miles to Naples. And now we've got choices. We have everything available. We've got, you know. 75 restaurants on Marco Island that are all really good because if you're not a good
1: restaurant on Marco
6: Island, you don't last 10 minutes.
1: Exactly. Yes, exactly. And what's changed in the boating?
6: Oh, boating has really not changed that much. When I'm out with folks, we're we're quite often impressed by the fact that there's not that many boats around us, but we're blessed because we do have so much uh, diversity in the 10,000 islands in our area. We are about 10 miles in Naples with no more building allowed and about 20 miles of uh, Everglades City to the south of us. So if you spread all these boats out in this large, vast area, there's just not that many of them. So I don't think it's really changed that much as far as boating goes. But you do see a lot of really upscale, new modern equipment. That's, that's about all. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot, yeah. But the
1: boating hasn't changed, which means you've, you still have options.
6: Lots of options and lots of places to be by yourself and, and get out there and explore and not even run into anybody else.
1: All right, let's talk about the myths, the wrecks, the pirates. Uh, any, any treasures out there?
6: Well, if we go back to the year uh, 1622.
1: Well, that's easy for you to say.
6: <laughs> that was uh, the Nuestra Atocha.
1: Oh, and, we know about that boat.
6: And that boat sank uh, basically about 70 miles west southwest of Key West. I'm sorry. What southwest of us, and uh, in 1985, that was Mel Fisher found. I
1: remember Mel Fisher, and he found all those gold coins.
6: Yeah, that was 400 million in gold and silver. Unreal. And that was you know less than 100 miles from Marco Island.
1: Are they still finding anything left?
6: Oh yeah, there's. It's it's just all over the place. You know, my book, Lost and Found, talks about finding uh, shipwrecks from a satellite, right? Satellite orbits the Earth, looks for minerals in the ground that would point to future oil fields, but accidentally finds little tight bundles of gold that turn out to be GPS locations for lost treasure ships. So in that, I did a ton of research and found this one lady that swears between, somewhere between Marco and Everglades City, there's a wreck site and every time there's a storm or a strong cold front, people go diving out there and it's this little secret club, and they're bringing up coins, you know? And like, no, Have you
1: seen one of these coins?
6: No, but I. she told me, so it's secondhand knowledge. <laughs> but, but she was like, I swear it's true. But, of course, that's that's every treasure hunter's.
1: But you know what? When you when you find a wreck like that, you're not just finding coins. You're finding guns, muskets, cannons.
6: That's right. And, uh, in fact, we were uh, – I was working with uh, with Bob Asher and the Cousteau family uh, in March, and we were down at, at – uh, Gomez Point on Panther Key. And that's where we uh we went diving down there and using the metal detectors uh for it's called Caribbean Pirate Treasure on the Travel Channel. And it was very interesting to watch. And we were walking along the beach with Jacques Cousseau's grandson. It's such an amazing, amazing thing for me being a, a a mariner and a diver. And here I am with Jacques Cocault's grandson. We're walking along using metal detectors, and we find this, it all of a sudden the thing goes off the charts it's a beep and we're like oh my god what is this you know so we start digging like crazy you know and they're filming this and again this is on caribbean pirate treasure and we go to commercial break
1: (laughs) no keep going and,
6: and then no i'm saying that's what they said then and uh we we dug up this this like old iron bar you know and it was just like wow you know so anyway there's stuff still out there there's stuff still out there and you never know this is where a a hermit juan gomez lived for uh for like years
1: well hold on to that thought Captain. because when we come back i want to talk about the diving out here that anybody else can do not not just searching for treasure but stuff that anybody can do that's accessible to them
6: oh yeah we have remarkable but for
1: people visiting this neighborhood i mean you take them out on the boat but you also know where the great dive spots are
6: yeah marco unfortunately has doesn't have the greatest reputation for diving because it's not consistently wonderful uh the diving, some days you can't see your hand in front of your face, and other days it's absolutely incredible. Uh, what we do have here, uh, we don't have any coral reefs, but we have shipwrecks offshore. And some of those vary from like 20 years old to, to Second World War. And when you get out far enough to do like a large shipwreck, there's more animals on these wrecks than anywhere I've ever seen.
1: So give me an idea, what, what's, what's your favorite wreck out there?
6: Um, about 30 miles out, there's a, uh, there's a paddle wheeler and it's about 150 feet long paddle wheeler. In the
1: ocean? In the ocean. What was a paddle wheeler doing in the ocean? They weren't built for the ocean.
6: That's right, and that's why it's there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you see, ask a stupid question, get the right answer. Well, yeah.
6: here's what happened, and this is, this is totally theory, and somebody else might say, no, Tom, you're wrong, which is what happens when boating and diving, but at any rate...
1: How big was that fish? It, oh, go ahead. Yes, yeah, exactly.
6: Yeah. So one theory is that that a lot of cattle was loaded onto to this paddle wheeler in Tampa.
1: And they shifted weight.
6: And they, and they shipped it down to Cuba where they traded it for gold, right? And that's and then so that was big money to ship uh, a lot of cattle in Florida, and Cuba needed cattle, bee feeders down there. So that's the story. And one day it got so rough it just didn't make it. Cold front, tropical storm, whatever. We don't know exactly the day yeah. Paddle
1: wheelers that. are not good taking water over the bow.
6: No, they are not, especially with a bunch of cows panicking and running around.
1: Okay, and how did the cows swim? We don't know. Okay. Yeah, not very well. Not very well. I don't <laughs> think so. All right, so that's one of the dyes. And, and has the, the woods not all rotten?
6: Uh, no, surprisingly not. There's a, uh, I've seen a steam gauge from uh, uh, 1841. Yeah. yeah Amazing. So, yeah, so it looks pretty good. And if you dig down in the sand, uh, there are fire bricks that you can dig up. I've, I've not seen one. I've heard of them again. Uh, St. Louis, Missouri right where they were forged or whatever
1: amazing Um, okay so that's one wreck but you mentioned a wreck from world war ii
6: yeah there's the baja california and that's at right about 50 miles offshore and that was a a wreck sank by a german u-boat uh in 1942 when the germans had um 10 submarines in the gulf of mexico and were going after the um the oil and gas coming across from port arthur and the um, the uh, hard case goods coming down to
1: Mississippi. People forget that the German U-boats were very active in the Caribbean and also in the Gulf. That's right, Ernest Hemingway's Islands in the Stream. You, you, you just mentioned, and we haven't talked about this before, that's my favorite movie. That movie with George C. Scott and Claire Bloom and, and Hart Bochner. what an amazing movie that is. I, I, if anybody can Netflix it now, watch that movie Islands in the Stream. It was the last Hemingway book
6: I've got goosebumps. Peter. I'm telling
1: you, it was the last Hemingway book, and the best, and the best. And it was finished actually by his widow, Mary, uh, because he was in the middle of it when he died. Uh, and you want to see amazing acting, amazing cinematography, and believe it or not, an amazing soundtrack. Um, unbelievable, and what a great story it tells.
6: Totally agree. Totally agree. I was once in Bimini, yeah, and saw that house. Because beginning. that's where they shot it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing.
1: Directed by Frank Schaffner. I know everything about that movie. I didn't know you loved that movie. Oh, my oh God. yeah.
6: It's one of my favorite books, too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I recommend it. Anybody who watched that movie and emails me gets a special prize. <laughs> you know what the prize is? You got to see the movie. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the way life was back then. So true. So true. It just, the realistic
6: aspects of that movie are just phenomenal.
1: It is. Yeah. All right. So we've got the Baja California sunk by a german u-boat torpedoed i suppose right right yeah and what's one that's accessible to just regular folks who are not like master divers okay uh,
6: what's really exciting about us right now is we are having um one of the largest artificial reefs ever built uh between marco and naples uh and it's like these little pyramid things of concrete that they're setting out on the seafloor and it's not deep it's fairly shallow water and this is just like amazing for you know uh Intermediate divers that you know not that don't have to go deep water don't have to go 100. they say it's being built now Yeah, it's a vast majority of it's already completed
1: and have the fish show shown up.
6: Oh, yeah There's already photos photos online. You can check it out. Check out largest underwater reef uh, Artificial reef uh, Marco Island Naples
1: and it's there and it's accessible.
6: Oh, yeah, it's it's readily accessible
1: and you can take me out there. Let's go (laughs) Now you're using a sailboat
6: uh, well, I'm using a sailboat. Uh, I'm using a, a very unique boat. It's a... Uh, it's a cat? It's a cat.
1: See, I knew that. Okay. And
6: it's um, it's a James Warham design, and uh, this boat is um, it's amazing. There's only two like it in the United States. Uh, we had a custom-made our JW Marriott, and they are uh, eight meters, and they are absolutely beautiful. Um, they're designed by James who who is a famous English yacht designer who was in New Zealand at a maritime museum and found a, a boat that they say, a catamaran that they say is 700 years old. And he said, this is perfect. They sailed around the Pacific Ocean forever. Uh, who am I to um, to do better than that? So he took that exact same boat. He copied it that, that in the museum, and he made these boats that we have today.
4: Hello
0: and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
1: I go back to a story that happened not too long ago when I was in, uh, in Orlando and somebody said, oh, you want to go to Old Town? I said... What's Old Town? How far back does Old Town go? And they said, oh, 1955. Oh, stop. You don't call it Old Town when it goes to 1955. However, there's a lot of history around if you just look hard enough. And my next guest knows about that. Uh, He's from the Naples Historic Society. John Teleshek, how are you?
7: Good. How are you you doing?
1: How's Old Town?
7: (laughs) Uh, I guess good. I hope it's doing good. Our our town's doing great.
1: (laughs) Well, tell me about your town in terms of history.
7: All right. Well, I work at, uh, I'm the education manager at Historic... Palm Cottage which is the portal as we call it to Naples history it is the oldest uh, standing house now in Naples it was built in 1895 and it saw Naples initially from the beginning there
1: and what was it originally built
7: as it was actually built as an annex for the Naples Hotel which was just up the street from it so
1: and how, how many rooms are we talk about at the Naples Hotel uh,
7: the actual hotel to be honest off the top of my head I don't know the exact number of rooms when it first started depends on what period I mean by the time it was closed down in 1964 um, I'm guessing there's probably close to a couple hundred rooms in there oh,
1: bigger than I thought yeah okay.
7: but when it first opened up in 1889 on January 1st, 1889, I mean, there's probably about maybe 20, 30 rooms there. You
1: know, it's interesting when when you talk about history and hotels, especially going back to the 1800s, people will tell you, well, which hotel are you talking about? Because the first one burned down, then they rebuilt it, then the second one burned down, then they rebuilt it. This one never burned down?
7: Actually, it did burn down. There you go. Okay, fine. 1964, (laughs) and it got hit by a hurricane 1960, Hurricane Donna, but it it was there since 1889. They kept building onto it and expanding upon it. Um, Historic Palm Cottage was built as an addition just down the street from it, as um, it was built by a, a gentleman named Walter Haldeman, who is considered the father of Naples. And and, built, and,
1: and why was he considered the father
7: of Naples? Uh, basically, he's the one who actually in 1890, he basically, uh, you could say, bought the town. He actually won it at an auction. He's the only one who showed up um, for about $50,000. <laughs> now, yeah. you see,
1: there's branding for Naples. Yeah, There it is right there. We won at an auction. How many people were at the auction? Me.
7: (laughs) (laughs) Essentially. And he came there a little earlier, too, as well. He was actually, uh, he came here in um, in about 1887 or so. He was with his good friend, General John Williams, and they were fishing off of Gordon Pass there, and they saw there was a land office. They were doing land surveying in the area at the time, and they were trying to sell off land. The um, pier, none of that stuff existed yet. So Um, He decided they're both from Louisville, Kentucky, and and most of the early residents who came here and visitors came from Louisville, most of them knew Haldeman personally, so they called it Little Louisville at the time.
1: Now, this cottage Mm -hmm. was built in a different way, wasn't it?
7: Yes, it's actually constructed out of a material called tabby mortar, and that's derived from the Spanish word tapia. And actually, uh, the Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine, part of it is made out of that as well, or a good chunk of it is. Uh, So I always joke around, technically, historic Palm Cottage could take the impact of a cannonball. We won't test that theory out. Um, But initially, it is the only uh, tabby mortar construction home still standing in southwest Florida. Well,
1: there's proof right there. It's still standing.
7: It's still standing, yeah. Absolutely.
1: And the walls are thick, aren't
7: they? Yeah, they're about a foot thick. It's the outer walls, about 12 feet high, uh, high and about a foot thick um and basically tabby is initially a conglomerate of, of shells crushed shells and sand uh, you heat it up over typically they use button wood it's a local wood we have here that burns very hot and uh, doesn't create a lot of smoke though and they mix it together and they pour this concrete mixture into these molds wooden boards and essentially create a pretty solid concrete uh, construction
1: now the people who come and visit you there and, and, and tour the house mm-hmm. what's the biggest surprise for them
7: i think the size of it when they walk when you hear the word cottage you think it's a nice little cozy little house when yeah. you walk into this house when you walk into historic palm cottage i mean it's it's got high ceilings it's very grandiose that there's all wood floors made out of dade county pine you have cypress wood uh, paneling i mean it's fancy Remember, this is an annex for a grand hotel. The people who stayed here were people that were used to staying at the Waldorf Astoria. Um, in fact, we do have the uh, cut crystal glass bell from the actual hotel in Historic Palm Cottage. And it's it's not your typical hotel bell. You go up and ring, and it's, you know, like made out of brass or metal. It's, it's you know, pewter and glass, cut crystal glass. So uh, beautiful piece and very unique. It's-
1: okay, so the surprise of the high ceilings on the floor... Um- I would think they'd be surprised about how well preserved it is.
7: Oh, thank you. Well, they actually are preserved by. Are excited about that too. When they come in, they see it, and they see it. And when they tell them the age, eighteen ninety-five. I mean, they're really blown away by that too. Um, the house was actually, I mean, it was a mixed-use residence really up until nineteen forty-five when the last um, people to buy it uh, turned it into a single-family home. But it served as a uh, an annex for the hotel. Um, it served as a rental property. It served as a, a place where um, you had a basically a boarding house. Uh, so. Uh, kind of a multi-use facility, if you will.
1: And never a bordello?
7: And never a bordello, as far as we know, no. As
1: far as we know. No,
7: no, no. As far as we know, the, our, our archivist is really good about the research, and we don't have that in our in our uh, background.
1: Well, in terms of the research, as the archivist was going through all this, what was mm. the biggest surprise doing that during that research that you had no
7: idea about? That's a fantastic question. That's a question I could ask her, actually. Um, she answer far better than I do I think she discovers things all the time like a couple days ago we found this picture that she found in a newspaper article it's a view from the top of the Naples Hotel looking down the beach towards the pier which was the only entry exit point point. Um, and you can see actually there's a little tram line that Haldeman had built like basically a little a roll cart line um, where you could have like porters roll their carts up uh, so they wouldn't have to lug this baggage up the street and it's the first time we've seen this photograph um, so she's always finding interesting stuff. There's picture that we pictures that we identify. Um, we have a, a program called Council of Longtime Friends and it's all what we call Naples old timers. They call themselves that. And they basically go and they, they identify, Oh yeah, that's so and so and they used to own the store. We don't know that. They tell us this oral history, which is it's a great event, it's fantastic. And anybody can go visit? anybody can come visit yes we have um we have tours um pretty much every day except for sundays and mondays um that would
1: be five days a week
7: five days a week just yes. thought i tell you yes that. Yeah. yeah um and then we have a pupils at palm cottage program for um, our local students here it's a free program and it's um, basically for them to learn about their history their cities their town's history
1: Okay, so what's the biggest surprise for you that you've learned about this place?
7: Really, um, it's all the stories. I mean, history, one of the things with history, everyone always thinks names and dates and says, you know, it's kind of boring. And it is. Names and dates really are boring. When you hear the stories of people and who was there and what they were doing there and just who they were. I think that's really what fleshes out history. That's what makes it interesting. It's stories. And every time when I started learning about this place, there's so many stories connected to that. I mean, we're, we call ourselves the central voice of Naples history and the historic Palm Cottage is the portal to it. And it really is because that's where, you know, the city of Naples history really began when, uh, what we know as Naples today.
1: And speaking of storytelling, what's Mm -hmm. the story you like to tell more than anything else
7: that's a great question i mean really talking about haldeman basically building the home um and why he built it he actually built it as a um partly as an annex for the hotel but he gave it to um had a room for his good friend henry watterson who was a pulitzer prize winning writer um and he worked for the louisville courier too and he often took wait, wait.
1: what was his name again watterson
7: yeah henry Watterson. well
1: he was a friend of mark twain
7: Yes, he actually was. You know that. Yep, yeah. he actually looks like him. There's a we have a photograph. People say he looks like Mark Twain. Well, he was good friends. Samuel Clements. Yeah. yeah, got the idea for it. But very for the time period, he took stances that were were actually considered unpopular. Prohibition, for example, he was anti-prohibition, wrote openly about it. Uh, women's suffrage, he said women should have the right to vote. Why shouldn't they? What he's most well known for is his writings on the first world war at the time um we were very isolationist. you know we always hear the song over there yeah people really thought oh this war is going over in europe it's not going to be an issue for us um and he wrote you know this is something we should be concerned about so in many ways he helped shape a lot of aspects of american history and he spent a lot of time there and he was relaxing Hunting, fishing, probably, I don't know if he sunbathed no, no, on the he beach. No, forgot
1: something. Drinking.
7: And that too, he probably was drinking as well. Come
1: on. <laughs> a writer who was anti-prohibition? Yeah,
7: guy exactly.
1: Was, guy was tanking. He was
7: enjoying himself, yes. Absolutely.
1: Yes. And any admission fee?
7: Um, It's $13 a person for our initial fee to come into Historic Palm Cottage. Uh, kids 10 and under are free. Um, we also have a walking tour too, as well, and that's that's on Wednesday mornings. You have to pre-book it online. Um, that's about twenty-two dollars. Um, so.
1: But if you want a, a really good glimpse of the past history of Naples, it's right there.
7: Absolutely, absolutely. I could fly
4: into the, sky. So the charge for looking at this pamphlet is three dollars. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is four dollars. <laughs>
1: many of you know who listen to the show on a regular basis, there are three places I always like to go. Actually, four. Every time I go to a new city, I go to the firehouse because those guys know everywhere. They've been in everybody's hotel and everybody's house and everybody's restaurant. They know everything. I like to go to the library because that's where you learn everything because it's not the librarians telling you to shush. It's everybody wanted to tell you about where they lived because they studied it more than you did. And then the other two places are either the aquarium or the zoo. And it might surprise you how many zoos there are in America that are not really heralded, but they're very cool places. And joining me now, the President and CEO of the Naples Zoo at Caribbean Garden. Jack Mulvana how are you?
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, you're not really from here. You're a Rhode Island boy.
2: I am a Rhode Islander, yeah. I came down from Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence.
1: So you have some zoo experience, as they say.
2: I've got some experience, yeah. What's different? <laughs> Never about, enough.
1: Of course. <laughs> but what's different about this zoo?
2: Uh, this zoo is pretty extraordinary. It's, um, <clears throat> I think, a combination of the history and the beauty. We're about to celebrate our 100th anniversary of as, the property. And,
1: and you know what? Most people would not know that you have a 100th anniversary zoo.
2: No, there's not too many 100-year anniversaries down here. So,
1: <laughs> Well, okay, somebody had to start this. Whose idea was this 100 years ago?
2: 100 years ago, Dr. Henry Nerling came down and settled on 13 acres to do uh, plant propagation and science, opened H. Nerling's Tropical Garden and Arboretum. He passed away in 29, and then Julius Fleischman was developing 3rd Street, and he opened Caribbean Gardens, and then in 1969, Jungle Larry's opened, and the zoo was started. <laughs>
1: What's your, Jungle Larry's? Jungle
2: Larry's. It's got its start as <laughs> Jungle Larry's. <laughs>
1: Sounds like a bad kid show. Yeah. Uh,
2: it, yeah, well... Yeah, okay, it fine.
1: Wonderful. But it now it's a real zoo. It's no longer Jungle Larry's.
2: Now, we're, we've been accredited by the ACA since 2001 and doing some extraordinary th- things, seeing about 370,000 people a year.
1: Well, my experience at the zoo, and I've been, is that you can actually get closer to the animals there than at most zoos.
2: Yeah, the, one of the things we hear from our guests is that, is that how close they can get to basically everything. And then they're surrounded by this former botanical garden, so they're surrounded by beauty and a lot of native animals, which is really cool.
1: I guess the question, and can you feed some of the animals too?
2: You can feed giraffes. Um, and by a, the way,
1: you feed them carefully because they'll headbutt you.
2: you, you got to be a little careful. I've been headbutted
1: <laughs> by a giraffe, and that's nothing but muscle. Threw it, me across the room.
2: I imagine a headbutt from a giraffe would have thrown It'll do you it. across yeah. the room. Yeah. We're very careful with our guests. We have right. not, We have had no headbutts yet.
1: Oh, good. Yeah, Emphasis not on quite. the word yet. <laughs> <laughs> What's the range of animals that you have?
2: Oh, I mean we've got we've got 200 animals um, we obviously are in a in a subtropical climate so all of our animals kind of thrive in this in this environment so we've got everything from tigers to lions we're one of four zoos that have honey badgers giraffes monkeys primates reptiles birds the tigers are from where uh, malaysian tigers our, wow. our two males are yeah not indian uh malaysian very critically endangered only about 300 left in the wild so they're wow yeah
1: i'm assuming you have educational programs to let people know their responsibilities
2: yeah, we actually um, we actually have keeper talks uh, throughout the day. We have three shows in our Safari Canyon. Uh, we do education programs, our zoo camp programs, preschool programs. We're working with all the kids in K through five in Calier County School. So yeah, we're we're doing our part to to get the word out that uh, environment's important.
1: I'm assuming. Uh, I mean, one of the things I love about zoos around the country, and I go back to the oldest zoo, which is the Philadelphia Zoo.
2: Grew up in Delaware. There you go.
1: <laughs> they do overnights
2: yeah we would like to do overnights uh and we will eventually do overnights we don't have um indoor facilities at this point Uh, we're in the middle of a capital campaign we're going to be building a major new education center and once we do that we're going to do overnights those overnights are are the best they're cool very cool yeah yeah
1: uh, there was one that was done actually in, in the zoo in Honolulu called Zookeeper for a Day mm. for kids. Parents loved it because they could be on the beach all day and the kids were having the best time ever. And and a zoo that they never thought was a zoo because you don't think of a zoo in Hawaii. You know, you just think of a beach and, and a macadamia, a, you know.
2: I, uh, I lived in Hawaii in fifth grade, so i very familiar with that.
1: Yeah, and it's great. Zookeeper, <laughs> and the, what was happening is they'd go to be zookeeper for a day, and they'd come back for two more days. They couldn't get enough of it.
2: Well, you know, I mean, most great zoos and accredited zoos, it's kind of a continuum experience. You know, you come, you visit the zoo, you get really charged up, you really enjoy it, and you want to do more. So you want to get involved in zoo camp programs and preschool programs and overnight programs. It's the way, you know, to kind of continue that relationship with the animals in the zoo.
1: Hey, tell me about your program called Wastashore.
2: Oh, it's pretty extraordinary. Ashore is a 11-giant, uh, 12- to 15-foot marine mammal, marine animal sculptures that have been uh, created by an artist working with hundreds of volunteers collecting trash from our beaches. Um, There's a message tons there. Tons and tons of trash, and she has sculpted these into these 12 by 15 foot sea otters and sea turtles, and, the, and the message is we've got to do everything we can to keep our, our seas clean.
1: I mean, look, every animal tells a story, but these tell another story.
2: It's a scary story. When you come, we're going to open on November 17th and run through April, and it's a uh, it's the, the the power of the exhibit is the volume of trash that was created just to do these sculptures and so um, it's appeared all over the country it's been very popular and obviously we're a we're, we're a we're a sea community here so we think the message is going to be strong here
1: well I hope it is because it needs to be heard and absolutely. then it needs to be acted upon
2: absolutely
4: be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. <laughs>
1: My next guest, if you look at his background, you know I'm going to love the food because he grew up in a diner in New Jersey. Just about, right? Because your dad had, he had a 19-seat diner. And now he's the executive chef here at the JW Merritt. Eric Vesta, how are you, sir?
3: Excellent. Thank you.
1: How was the diner food back then?
3: It was fantastic. Um,
1: <laughs> you know how I judge diner food? Grilled cheese.
3: I always did it by water service. Tell me more. You know, if... If my cup of water was always full and I had fresh ice in it, I knew I had quality service there. So that's how I rated my diners as a kid. Ooh,
1: I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for that. I like that. I'll tell you what else I do. You're gonna hate what I do now. When I, when I go to a restaurant, not just at a hotel, any restaurant, and I'm going to dinner, let's say just with you, mm-hmm. I never ask for a table for two. I ask for a table for three. I don't want to sit there crowded in with other guys. And, and the, I call them the terrible twos. Those two tops, right? I, I have always ask for, I always have a reservation for three because they have to give me a table for four. Now I can actually have a decent meal and spread out and
3: talk. And you could bring a bag.
1: Yeah, well, and that too, but the point is, I hate, ter- I, I, it's the tyranny of the t- of the terrible twos. Do you agree or not?
3: I do agree. Okay, good. That's not a petty idea.
1: I, I'm telling you, it's, I, you know what? I would actually open a restaurant called Table for Three.
3: Question, but if you were a t- if group of four, would you ask for a table of five? Never. Okay.
1: Never. Cause only for two. Because that's enough separation. That's fine. Yeah. So now, that. what did you bring to this hotel from that diner experience that has made the food here different? better, fabulous, and of course I can imagine what the water service is like here now.
3: Well, <clears throat> the one thing that is newly in our area with uh, having 10K Alley, our gastropub, we brought on a fried bologna sandwich. Now I'm not saying that's from the <laughs> diner days, but it's definitely something... That's from was, Queens. When I was growing up, <laughs> uh, always fond of that sandwich, and we refined it a little bit using a very high-end mortadella and nice caramelized onions on a soft By the way, room.
1: caramelized onions work on anything.
3: I would have to agree to that.
1: If you give me garlic, caramelized onions, or a grilled cheese sandwich. In fact, give me all those in a grilled cheese sandwich. I'm happy.
3: It sounds like you're from New York.
1: I am. Of course. But I'm a Manhattan boy. I was, not, I was not in New Jersey.
3: Well, the only difference is when you grew up, you had bacon, egg, and cheese. And where I grew up, we have Taylor ham, egg, and cheese. Ah.
1: But where you grew up, you had Howard Johnson's, and you had the fish fries on Friday. Uh, that's no, New Jersey. Right. They were yeah. all over New we Jersey. Had Hojos everywhere. Yeah, oh, everywhere, everywhere. They're, I think they're mostly gone now. Now they I think we now have IHOPs and stuff. But all right, so you got a fried. People are coming to the JW Marriott for a fried bologna sandwich.
3: No, it just happens to be something that's new on our <laughs> menus. Um, I think what we have that's so great is it's, we have such diversity in our culinary uh, offerings here versus a lot of uh, the other JW resorts with having the ten restaurants on property. Right, but how many kitchens? Kitchens in total, we've got about 15-plus kitchens. Wow.
1: And you have a dedicated room service kitchen?
3: Dedicated room service kitchen, banquet kitchen, prep kitchen, garmage kitchen, pastry shop. Are, are you
1: smoking your own salmon?
3: Uh, we do not smoke. Our ah, salmon. do you
1: smoke any fish here at all?
3: We do. We smoke our, we cure our own fish. We don't smoke it for our room service menu. Wow. Um, we have the capability of doing, we just, it's the volume.
1: Yeah. I I ask this of every chef, so you're no exception. Here it comes. Forget the fried fried bologna sandwich for a second, okay? What's the one item that you've put on your menu that you thought, man, this is going to kick butt, everybody's going to love it, and it tanked? And then, conversely, what's the one item you said, who's ever going to order this, and you can't keep it in stock because everybody wants it?
3: Okay. It's funny that you mentioned grilled cheese. In our Quinn's restaurant, we put on uh, a grilled cheese, but it was like a gourmet grilled cheese. It was aged asiago, provolone a little cheese. gouda in there? Um, no, it was mozzarella. Okay. It had this really nice tomato jam on it, on sourdough bread. And we said, this is a great option for lunch if you were vegetarian. Tanked.
1: It's, now, is it on the menu anymore? It's off the menu. Oh, see, I would have ordered that. It sounds good. It
3: just, and you know, people questioned it. Versus, we had this um, a black bean burger, and I just was maybe the way it worded just didn't sell great. But I said, hey, grilled cheese is very common, and I think even the children would like it. No, didn't work. Okay,
1: so what's the one thing you put on the menu saying who's going to order this, and you can't? It just flies off the shelf.
3: Well, I'd have to. We started these healthy bowls in our cane restaurant, where we do like an ahi tuna with barley and rice um with mango and cucumbers and we were just trying it out we said you know it's no it's very trendy with having these healthy bowls and we also do a teriyaki chicken one they sell it every day really yeah
1: now do you, do you do a pokey
3: we have a pokey in our quinn's restaurant now
1: we're talking okay yeah all right so we know what didn't work we know it did work mm-hmm. so where's my grilled cheese salad?
3: <laughs> <laughs> come on <laughs> we can whip one up for you that's not a problem
1: all right you miss new jersey
3: uh only in the fall yeah only in the fall, that's right. The fall. That's the magic month. Yeah. Magic wow. month on the East Coast. September, October, the yeah. leaves changing. That's a really just always been my favorite time of the year. And is the fried bologna sandwich selling? Yes, it is. You put mustard on it too? We put a mustard mayonnaise on it. Ah.
4: You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
2: But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Always on the go? Well, now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews on CBS Mornings on the go. It's a podcast you can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Wondery Plus.
4: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you.